to treating all the women in my life and my family, but that's the way it is. But anyway, if you have your Bibles, as I said, please turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, last week, we finished up the study on the judgment seat of Christ. And let me just say, if there ever was a time in your life when you didn't understand what the body, soul, and spirit was and how to break that down, you need to get last week's. I don't know that I could ever explain it any clearer than I explained it last week. You know, so much talked about, you know, your mind and your heart, you know, and your soul and your spirit and all that stuff. We went into the Bible last week as our final uh, question on the judgment seat of Christ, whose spirit came from me, and we defined those things. Showed you how that there's four spirits on this earth. Man can be affected by three of them, and how that figures into the judgment seat of Christ. So uh, we talked about that. And today, as we're going to, you know, have our time of communion this morning, and we're going to take the uh, that, and we're going to observe the death of the Lord, and uh, with the broken bread and the and the cup, I, I wanted to take the opportunity again and and really uh, define some more biblical concepts. You know, we uh, I try to take every opportunity we can, whatever we're talking about, not to waste any time. I, I don't want to just take you know a little uh, give you a little sermonette about something. You know, when we have an opportunity, we have so little time anyhow. I, I want to focus every chance we can on, on hard, fast, biblical principles and doctrines. And we're in a study on how to build a relationship with God, and very frankly, 90% of building a relationship with God is simply understanding the basics. So we're going to talk about some things today and build around uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, uh, that much like uh, you know the body, soul, and spirit is something that most people really don't understand why we do it. Uh, you know, and that's a real tragedy today in, in God's people's lives. You know, years ago when I was a kid growing up, uh, I was in the baby boomer era, you know. When I was growing up, it was, uh, you know, the aspect of World War II, you know, was very exciting. And as a kid, we played Army and on television, it was all kind of thing. I remember there was a series called Why We Fight. And it was a, it was a documentary on World War II, and it talked about why we fight, why we, why we fought World War II. And I thought it was good, looking back on it, because it not just showed you the battles, but it gave you the philosophy as Americans why we fight. I've often thought since that time, you know, that <clears throat> there ought to be a set of tapes for Christians on, on why we believe. Because just like today in America, God's people, or uh, Americans have forgotten why we fight, God's people have forgotten or maybe never knew why we believe. And much that we do as God's people... <clears throat> it's because somebody told us to do it. We don't really understand what the Bible says. And I want to correct that, at least in this church. That's why I'm willing to take whatever time it takes to help you figure out the Word of God and put it all together, because there's, there's much misinformation taught about the church today. And it's much like I said, it's much like the spirit and the mind and the soul and the heart. And when you stop to think about the church, the first question that comes to your mind, you know, is what is the church? How does it all figure in? How does it all lay itself out? What does it mean? Why do we take the, the communion? What is communion? What is the Lord's Supper? Are they the same? Are they different? How come I hear it taught this way all these years? And we're going we're gonna to set the record straight on some things today, especially uh, for you uh, who are members of this church, so you understand why we do what we do. But let's go to the Lord this morning before we uh, get into this, and let's ask God's blessing. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you, Father, for all that you do for us, and we ask you to bless our time today. Uh, give us a good time in your word. We thank you for those that are here. Pray you'll continue to bless us in all that we do, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, when you start to talk about the church, 
for me, I, I'm a pretty simple guy. I, I have to look at everything in its complexity and then break it down for me in its, in its most simple form. I call it the lowest common denominator. That's the way I approach life. When, when I see something that's complex, the only way for me to understand it is to get in and look at it and see it in its basic form. Because I, and that's why when I, when I used to get something for Christmas or my kids got something, I never bothered reading the directions because that just complicates it. Just look at it and fix it, and then after three or four hours and your wife yells at you a lot and the kids are crying, then get the directions. But, you know, prove your point. Try to figure the thing out. Now, maybe it always doesn't work that way, but at least when you approach life that way in time, you get the ability to break things down to see it. And for the church, it's for me. And here's the church in a very simple form. And I'm going to talk to you about the church and then some things that go along with it. But so you understand it. And I've told you this before. This is not new, but this is how I understand it and how I broke it down. When God went back to heaven, you remember the Lord was here in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He presented himself to the nation of Israel. He laid out all the things to the nation of Israel, and then he went back to heaven. When he went back to heaven, we found that the literal visible body of Christ is no longer here. Jesus is back in heaven. But when he went back, <coughs> he replaced himself with three things. And these three things that he replaced himself with make up the New Testament church. The first thing that he replaced himself with was the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God in the New Testament is totally different in its operation than it is in the Old Testament. We've talked about that in Bible study on, on Thursday night. In the Old Testament, he comes and he leaves. He's an influence in seven different aspects of the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. Something happened when the New Testament started and the church began to be uh, in being that never happened before. Now, the Holy Spirit of God lives and dwells inside believers never to leave again. That's the first thing that he replaced himself with. The second thing that he replaced himself with was the Word of God. Up to this point, the Word of God was incomplete. All they had was the Old Testament. When Christ goes back to heaven, there's a period of time in the book of Acts where he writes all of the rest of the New Testament books, other the books than John writes. And when John caps it off in 90 A.D. by writing the book of Revelation and the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the Bible is now complete. Now, the Holy Spirit of God lives inside us, first part of it. Now we have the completed Word of God, the revelation of God, the road map of life, so to speak, we have the Holy Spirit of God that will lead and guide us into all truth in that road map, but there's a part missing. God has a plan for us. <clears throat> that plan is found in the Word of God. You will never understand that plan until God's Holy Spirit opens up your understanding and gives you that plan. So that's why He gave you the Holy Spirit of God to lead and guide you, the Word of God that you could find what God wanted you to do in your life, now all you need is a car or a motorcycle or an airplane. What you need now is a vehicle by which you can get where you need to go to accomplish what God wants you to accomplish. The Holy Spirit of God is your guide. The Word of God is your roadmap. And now the third component that he replaced himself with was or is the local church. The local church is the vehicle by which you get where you need to go and do what you need to do based on the road map and the Holy Spirit of God to guide and lead you into all truth. Now, in a nutshell, that is the local church. It is the vehicle by which God expects us and gave to us to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. What is the church? It isn't a building. 
I know you go down the street and you see, you know, this church or that church and they all got the little names on it. We have our little name. We have our long name. And we have our name on, uh, we don't have it out here. But the truth of the matter is, people over time tend to think that the church is something holy. So therefore, they go to great expense to put stained glass in it, you know, and and things on spirals and steeples and crosses and, and murals and all those things because they want to, and in time, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm saying it's wrong to the point where you start to think that some building is the church. Hey, <clears throat> we can meet out, if it was nice, we can meet out in a park someplace we can meet in a warehouse. We can meet in a broken down gas station. We can meet in somebody's house. <clears throat> we could rent a back room of a bar someplace that was closed on Sunday. It isn't where you meet. It is the people are the church. And you need to understand that because it's taught today that the church is a building. We believe that the church, we, we always think of it that way, and if it isn't kept clear and isn't preached on, it isn't taught right, and new Christians aren't educated, they grow up in four or five generations to think there's something special about a building that we got to give it a holy look. <clears throat> that we got to have some kind of special look in the church that when you get in there, you feel holy like you're in the presence of God. That's wrong. You ought to be in the presence of God and be ye holy for I am holy, not because you have windows, not because you have a steeple, not because you're in a building that looks like, you know, uh, you know, that old thing, here's the church, there's a steeple, open the door and there's all the people. It isn't like that. It is a concept that you realize that you are the church. And it doesn't matter where you meet. Because you have to know that concept because of what is coming up here that we're going to talk about. All right, so we know that it replaced himself with the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and the local church. We know now that the, the church uh, is not a building as such. It's not a building. It is the people. Now, what, uh, what, is, what does the word church mean? It means called out. Now, here's another misconception. We think the local church, as we know it in, starting in the book of Acts, is the local church and is the church and there isn't any other church. That's not true. No, no, there's, there's at least five churches in the Bible. Starting all the way back at the, in, in the Old Testament and then coming all the way through. Because, you see, we got a misconception. We think that the local church that is exclusively us, that in the Old Testament, God's dealing with Israel, He's dealing with the kingdom, so the church is not back there. No, you're wrong. Any place in the Bible where somebody is called out is a church. You know the first church in the Bible is Noah. Noah was called out. The second church in the Bible would be Abraham. He's called out. The third church in the Bible would be the, uh, the nation of Israel. In fact, in the book of Acts chapter 7, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is called the church in the wilderness. And people don't know what to do with that. You know what they do? They say, ah, oh, that's a mistranslation, so we'll change it. It's not a mistranslation. It's a doctrinal concept that the word church simply means called out, and through the Bible, different groups of people have been called out, and in that sense, they are a church. I'll show you the next one, Matthew chapter 10, uh, 12 apostles. They're called out. They're a church. Now, then in the book of Acts, you find us. We are called out. But there's a difference between us and the rest of the churches. We are the only church that is indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. 
Therefore, we are different than the rest, but they are churches in every sense of being called out. They're just not churches in the sense that we are of being indwelled with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, you have to understand that. Because if you don't, it gets real confusing when you try to figure things out and you come to Acts chapter 7 and it talks about the church in the wilderness or you get into Matthew and it talks about the church and suddenly you're scratching your head so the only thing you can do with it if you don't deal with it in the Bible is get rid of it. And you don't want to do that. So what sets us apart from the rest of called out people is that we are alive. We are a living church with Jesus Christ living inside us. We have the Holy Spirit of God in us. They didn't. And that's why you've got to realize the church is not a building. It's a body. It's people. The church uh, is, is, like I said, it's not with steeples and stained glasses and, and, and pretty doors and pretty carpet and pretty pews. It, is, it has nothing to do with that. Nothing wrong with it as long as you understand the difference. And then you've got the next question that always comes up. When did the church start? And everybody and his brother has their own idea when it starts. The Bible's very clear when you study the Bible and you learn from history that God never just stops something and starts something. God always has a transition period. Always does. There isn't anything that God just did without giving a period of time that God transitions the thing. And when you want to you find out where did the church start, we know that the New Testament doesn't come into effect till the death of the testator, Hebrews chapter 9. So then the church goes into effect in, at the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. But it doesn't get empowered till Acts chapter 1. So now it's in effect. Now it's empowered. But that's why they're running around in the book of Acts not knowing what to do because it hasn't been revealed to them yet. You've got to remember, the church is a mystery in God's mind that God chooses to reveal or not reveal based on what man does with the truth that God gives him. So when you get up to Acts chapter 7, it's a mystery. That's why in Acts 1, he's dead. Church is in, 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 uh, the church is uh, now in effect. The New Testament's into effect. They're running around in Acts chapter 1. They see Christ. Their question is, hey, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now or what? He doesn't answer them. You know why he doesn't answer him? It's a secret in his mind, and he wants to see what Israel's going to do yet before he commits. So in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, up to Acts chapter 7, I mean, it's, 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 God hasn't revealed it yet. Yes, it's in effect. Yes, it's been empowered, but nobody knows it. How do they know it? I'll tell you how they know it. They know it when, uh, when Paul gets saved, he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, and then he reveals, he reveals what takes place. So when you see it and you understand it, you realize that, again, the church goes into a three-point transition. It goes into effect at the death of Christ. It gets empowered in Acts chapter 1, but it doesn't get revealed in Acts chapter 9. Then Paul spends the rest of his life as the apostle of the church to the Gentiles, building New Testament local churches, 
built with believers like you and I who are different from the Old Testament men and women because they are empowered to do the work of God. They have the Holy Spirit of God living inside them. There's no laws. There's no Old Testament scenarios. It's now a whole totally new ball game that went into effect at his death that it gets empowered in Acts chapter 1 and it gets revealed to the life in the Paul ministry of the Apostle Paul. And that's where it comes in. Now, as we look at churches, churches have four different forms of government. And you hear these words all the time, and now, from today on, you're going to know what those words mean. It won't be no more hearing on the radio that the Episcopal Church did this, and you're going to say, I wonder what Episcopal means. The Episcopal form of government means that the church is under the control of bishops. The word Episcopal is not really a church. It's a form of government that many churches call themselves because that's how they're governed. The second form that you have is called a synod or a presbytery. We think of the Presbyterian church and we think of that. The word presbytery or the word synod simply means that, that it is run, in, in, run by ordained elders. Then we have the third form of government which is called papal. And that's like the Roman Catholic Church. They have one man that... It controls everything. Then the fourth form of government is called congregational. And that's what we are. Don't, don't confuse that with somebody says, well, I go to a congregational church. Not the same thing. That's another whole deal. These aren't names of churches. These are forms of government by which the church operates. The congregational isn't run by anybody. There's no one man that tells us what to do. There isn't a, we're not run by a board somewhere in Missouri that says, okay, this is what you got to do. Send your money here. Do this, do that. Teach this, preach this. We're not under that. We are self-governing. We are the purest form of the New Testament church. The New Testament church had no board of elders. They weren't run by any bishops. They were a self-government within the body because they believed that the Spirit of God and the Word of God was their declaration by which they operated. And God indwelt men and women just like He did the pastor. And there was no need for one guy to dictate to everybody else what the world they were supposed to do that collectively... The mind of Christ, of us as a body in the Word of God, could prayerfully and faithfully in fellowship in the Word of God and loving each other solve any problem that come up. Now certainly somebody has to be in charge. It's a nasty job, but somebody's got to do it. I have to decide how many rolls of toilet paper we buy or what kind of thing we do this or what kind we do that. Somebody has to decide. Somebody has to take responsibility and take charge as the pastor. But I want to tell you right up front, you think I'm the only pastor here? I may be the head pastor and may be the leader and may the one that God has chosen to this time to do this, but there's men in here and, and women in here that are every bit knowledgeable in the Word of God as well, almost. <laughs> Always keep the edge. Shoot. And that's why I told you when we started, if you think I'm going to do all the preaching, you're crazy. That just stifles everybody. You need to preach. You need to learn how to preach. Not that you can't. You need to learn how to preach. I'm sure you can. You need, hey, I'm talking to you over here. Don't sleep on me. You need to preach. <laughs> Guy works as many hours as he does. He deserves taking a nap while I'm preaching. <laughs> Everybody, you need to preach. You need to learn how to preach. You need to preach. You need to preach. I'm not going to let anybody out. You all need to preach. Now, I'm telling you right now, I'm not against women preachers. I don't believe in women pastors. 
But I think every woman ought to preach. I really do. I think every woman ought to be able to preach. You say, do you have a problem with... I, mean, I don't think a woman ought to stand up and teach men. Well, I mean, she's got to be in submission. But because she gets up and teaches men, means she isn't in submission. Then look, as long as I'm the pastor, say, hun, go teach this thing over here, she is under my authority. And if her husband says it's okay, she's under his authority. See how weird, whacked out people get? No, I don't have a lot of women preachers because I know most of them preach better than me and that ain't going to happen. But I'm telling you this. Hey, you know what the congregational form of government is? Well, I'll get to that in a minute because I'm going to lay some things on you this morning. Now, now because the church in the Israel in the, ch- in the church in Israel are self-governed and run by men, that's really good and that's the biblical way. But there's a danger in that, and the danger is human nature. This is why the Bible talks so much about loving each other. This is why the Bible takes such a stand on backbiting and gossiping about each other. This is why the Bible takes such a stand on unity, being one in the Spirit, being one together, and standing through everything as one. You see, when you have any other form of government, you don't have to really care because somebody else is in charge. You don't really have to think. Well, you don't have to really worry about this because so-and-so's in charge, they have a bishop of elders, and we have this guy, a group of people. They'll make the decision. All i got to do is show up. That don't happen here. Don't happen here. I will, one thing I will never do, two things I will always do. One thing, no, I'm going to get the right. One thing I'll always do, one thing I will never do. First thing I'll always do is whenever I stand in the pulpit, I will teach you the Bible just the way it is. The second thing, the second thing I will never do is ever let you come into here to think that you don't have some responsibility in all of this. You as much as me. You see, you get the idea in the, in the Episcopal form or the Presbyterian form or the Papal form or whatever that you're just a, you're just a component. You're not a, you're not a, you're not a main part. That you're, you, what you think, what you say really doesn't count. So therefore, it's so easy human nature-wise just to slough off, not do anything, just go or not go, but really not take it as I really have a part of this. If you looked at the things of God and the church of God, from the form that it is the most unbelievable, important, valuable thing in this world, and you guarded it like you would guard the most precious thing you have, you'd see it differently. But human nature is something that we have to guard against. Hey, when I go into Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, you know what I see? I see seven churches there, man. The first one called Ephesus, fully purposed. The second one, Laodicea, justice of the people. From point A to point B, the church comes to the point where it just doesn't care. And the people who started out on fire for God wind up not caring and let somebody else do it. You know how that happens? Because of one thing in the church that you have to absolutely nail down and understand and really get tough with. And it is the word tradition. Now, when we say the word tradition, you automatically think of some dead Orthodox church out there that walks around with all their traditions and you think, oh, not us. Forget them. Let me tell you something. Baptists are the most traditional people you have ever met in your life and it is wrong. No, I'm not saying all tradition is wrong. I'm not saying that. 
Second Timothy, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two verse fifteen says, "Stand fast and hold the traditions which have been taught, whether by word or by our epistle." Now those are traditions based on the word of God. Every church has tradition, but make sure they're based on the Bible. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 2 and 3, we see the opposite. The disciples came to Jesus and they said, Why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders by not washing your hands before they eat? Now, there is no place in the Bible in the Old Testament that says you have to wash your hands before you eat. But they had come up with a whole bunch of ideas that have nothing to do with the Bible that they were, they were corralling people and trying to put them on guilt trips and control them. You know what tradition does in its lowest form? It's designed to control you. That's all that it is. It's designed to control you. When I was growing up, the issue was long hair. And if you had long hair, you couldn't even go to church. Now, the tragedy with that is today, the people that are in the church, that are preaching in the churches, have longer hair than they did back when I was growing up. What happened? God, God changed his standard? I figured it out one time when I heard a guy preach, and he was preaching at a youth rally, and he was just ripping the kids up about them having long hair. Now, I'm not a long hair, short hair advocate. I know my hair is short right now, but it's because I just had brain surgery, and I, you know, it's, it's growing back. But I don't wear my hair down. If you do, that's fine. It's whatever you want to do. But I don't ever judge a man's spirituality. I mean, I have likes and dislikes. You do too. I mean, I feel bad sometimes when I tap somebody in the shoulder and say, excuse me, ma'am, and turn around, and he's a guy. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. Nothing personal. I just, I'll look better next time. <clears throat> but I don't have a problem with it. <clears throat> If somebody had long hair and he believed the Bible, I'd let him preach. I'm not hung up on those things. But I'll never forget this guy. He was ripping these kids out, and he was, he was working up a sweat. I mean, he was, must have been 500 kids there. And he was just working the crowd, and he was preaching on, you know, teen things, you know. And one of them he settled on was long hair. And, I'm, and then he's preaching, and he's just, he makes his point, and he's sweating, and suddenly he turned around, and I, I, I was in the back, and, I, and, I, and his hair had, it was all sweaty, and, his, and he took his hand, and he pushed his hair and pushed it back. And, I, and immediately when he, he said that, I got the doctrinal content. Because that guy's hair came all the way down to his nose. Now, I immediately got it. This guy combed his hair back. I really found out at that point that the guys he was preaching had shorter hair than he did. It wasn't an issue of long hair. No, 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 no. The real issue was the position of that long hair. If that long hair went back, God was pleased. If that same long hair went forward, God shunned. It wasn't an issue of long hair. It was an issue of placement of long hair. Most Baptists don't believe you ought to go to movies. I don't care if you do or you don't. I think you ought to be enough spiritual in your mind to know what movies you should go see and what you shouldn't. But I, I remember this is I was I remember one time we were having a, a youth rally and they wanted to have they wanted to show they wanted to show a movie 
Walt, and down in the Bible colleges, they were showing Walt Disney movies, you know, and, and other G movies or whatever. They weren't showing anything bad. But, but I made the mistake. I said, okay, at the youth rally tonight, we're gonna, we've got a great movie for you. And the moment I said that, I could see the faces of all the preachers, they disdained. And, and, you know, and I, I thought for a minute I slipped and cussed or something because I have a tendency to do that sometimes. And I, you know, and I get saying things so fast, one of them just slip in there, and I thought I said something terrible. And afterwards, one of the, one of the bosses called me over and said, uh, please refrain from using the word movie. We're showing a film. I said, got it. I got it. I got it. That's like the hair thing. What did you say? Well, no, you weren't there. Don't worry about it. But it's like the hair thing. When it's forward, God is angered. When it's straight back, God is pleased. When I call it a movie, God goes, Ooh. When I call it a film, God smiles. I got it. I figured it out. You know what that is? That's tradition. That's tradition. I had a guy preach one time. You got slacks on. You got slacks on. You got slacks on. Godly women wear dresses. I've heard him say some terrible, vile things to women in pulpits because they wore slacks. I had a preacher one time called, called women dirty-legged whores because they wore slacks in his preaching. No, I'm telling you what. I read my Bible. What verse? Bible says a woman shouldn't wear that but pertain it to a man. Okay. I figured that one out too. That's like the long hair. This is like the movie deal. Because in the Bible, every man wore a short dress. Well, if you got a dress on, you got a man's clothes according to the Bible. You got slacks on, According to the Bible, that's not what a man wore. Where does this insanity come from? It comes from tradition. It comes from transgressing the Word of God, not caring what it says, because you want to manipulate people in their spirituality. It has nothing to do with the Word of God. They said, why don't your disciples wash their hands? Jesus said, because it isn't in the Word of God to wash your hands. Your move. And most of what you're taught today is done to control you. In the Baptist scenario, control you. They want to put you on guilt. They want to put you on guilt to come to church. Because they're living in a world where <clears throat> that, 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 that you got to have vast numbers to be successful so they can talk about it with their friends. They want to put you on a guilt trip to give because they got grandioso plans and they want your money. And in most churches, and as I was told this last week, I don't go to that church anymore because you know what they call us now? They, just, they don't call us people. They call us giving units. Well, okay. Like that idea. Put you on guilt trip to read your Bible. Put you on a guilt trip to make you spiritual, to conform to some rules. And if you don't conform it, that 
you're not really spiritual, but they don't really care what's going on on the inside. Let me tell you something. You can have the right haircut, wear the right clothes, and do everything you want, and be the most wicked person you ever saw in your life on the inside. And most of them are. Now let me tell you how it really is in the Bible. I love you. I have dedicated my life to teaching you the Bible, and I'm looking you all in the eye right now. I have dedicated my life to teach you in the Bible. I will give you the Word of God and teach you the Bible as best I can. The last thing I hope I do before I die is close my book, Bible after we're done in the Word of God together. You know what? I will do anything in the world. But the bottom line, and I want to, I, 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 we, have, we, have, we have set this church up for that aspect. We only meet two times a week. I know everything's busy. People have to drive a long way. But we try, I try to cram everything into there to get it done. But you know the bottom line is? I don't care if you come or you don't. I really don't. I want you to. But you know what I learned a long time ago when it came to the Bible and the Word of God and people? Don't ever want something more than the person you're working with wants it. I don't want you to be right with God one step farther than you want to be. Because the moment I do, I become vulnerable. I'll do something foolish. I will care more about your relationship with God than you do, and that ain't ever going to happen. It ain't ever going to happen. I will do whatever I can do for you. Hey, when you're in my ministry, you're part of my family. And when I know you're committed to it, hey, yeah, I'm concerned when you're not here. I want to know if you're sick. I want to know if you're not sick. I may call and check on you. But if you think I'm calling a check on you because I want you here, because I've got some thing. I told you when we started, this church will never grow to be a gigantic church. Not in the day and age that we live. I'm telling you, we will find a few people here, a few people here, some here, a family here that wants the truth and believes the truth, and we will do everything in our power until Jesus comes back to do that. But if you think, I'm going to manipulate you so you can come here, so I can have a big crowd to preach to, to buff up my ego, to think how great I am, I already know that. <laughs> my wife tells me all day long, every day how great I am. My kids send me cards. They call me on Veterans Day saying, Dad, thanks for being a veteran. I want you here. I want people to come. But I'm not going to put you on some kind of pseudo-spiritual guilt trip by manipulating you. I want you to come because I know what the Word of God will do. But you know what? You've got to choose. You've got to choose what is important in your life. If two times a week is too much for you, that's between you and God. And I'm not talking about now, hey, this is the busy time of year. And I'm not talking about when you get sick. I'm talking about in your attitude about the things of God. But tradition is used to put you on a guilt trip. Tradition is used to uh, put you on a guilt trip to come. It's, it's, it's put, used to put you on a guilt trip to give. I'm telling you, I'll teach you what the Bible says about giving. And if you're a member of this church, that's your responsibility. I'm not going to pass out pledge cards. I'm not going to go through and, and find out who is or who isn't. I, I played those games once with people, and I've come to the conclusion that the bottom line is this. We are going to do it right, or we ain't going to do it. You have an obligation to take care of your pastor and the church and the thing. You know what? You don't do it, 
We'll close the doors. I don't care. I'll go back with my family and anybody else and we'll scale it down to do whatever God wants us to do. It isn't my responsibility. We are in this together. You decide. We either do it biblically or we don't do it. I'm not going to resort to guilt tactics or tricking you or manipulating your emotions so you'll give to God. If you don't love Him enough to give Him everything in your life, keep it. It's okay. It's all right. I'm not going to manipulate you to read your Bible or win people to Christ or witness. I'm going to teach you the Bible the best way I know how. We're going to take every moment that we do have and those that are concerned about it, we will build and, uh, and we'll go from there. And I promise you, everything else will take care of itself. You do what's right with God, He'll do what's right with you. And the tragedy of that is, most of the time He still does right with you and me when we don't do what's right with Him. Glory to God. So the church didn't give any of those things. But I'll tell you what the church did get. And that's where we want to focus today. The church got ordinances. Ordinances. God gave the church two ordinances. They're not tradition, because an ordinance defined in the Bible is a rule established by authority. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, he says, Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I deliver them. The first ordinance is baptism. That's not an option. No, I know in our situation here, we don't, you know, we don't have a baptismal, so we've got to pretty much do it when we can. And, you know, and uh, we're kind of tough right now. I mean, uh, but uh, when the spring comes, you know, if anybody needs to be baptized, we'll baptize them. But, uh, uh, you know, that, that is the issue. That is the thing that was, that was laid out as something in the New Testament. It's not something that's negotiable. It's something that, that is absolutely set in stone. God says, be baptized. Baptized always manifests something. There's seven types of baptism in the Bible. But there's one true baptism, and that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit of God that Jesus came down from heaven. He came through the water in the second heaven. Genesis chapter 1 came down to the earth. He died, and He went back up through that water when He was going to glory. That's why we baptize. Buried in the likeness of His death, raised in the likeness of His resurrection. It pictures Him living glory, coming down through the water, coming down to the earth and dying, and going back up through the water. And He said, it testifies to unbelievers and the world that you are in me and I'm in you. That's why we do it. Preacher says, well, we baptize. Well, we baptize because Jesus was baptized. He was baptized to manifest himself to Israel, bozo. John chapter 4. He was, he was baptized to manifest himself to Israel. That's not why I get baptized. I get baptized because I know from the Bible that he was on the throne. He left that throne, came down through the deep, the water in the second heaven, came down to earth and went back up through that water and buried in the likeness of his death. I am raised in the likeness of his resurrection. That's why. That's the first one. Second one is the Lord's Supper. And communion. Now, every church I've ever been associated with, even growing up, has not done this right. And I know why they don't, and I know their reasons why they say they don't. 
But I just can't, I, I just can't fathom that you'd be such a sticker on long hair and not such a sticker on the Lord's Supper and Communion. I, I just can't believe you'd want somebody wearing the right clothes but not doing the right communion and Lord's Supper. I, I, but that's the way it is. You know why? Traditions. We put, we put emphasis where we can control people. But in the Bible, the Lord's Supper and communion are two different things. When he goes over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, he talks about taking the cup and he talks about taking the uh, bread. That's communion. When he comes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the church at Corinth, you know the story, is a, is a vile, fleshly, uh, ungodly church. He talks about a supper. He talks about a supper. And when he comes down through this great passage here, and we're not going to take time to read the whole thing, we've been through it a thousand times, you've all read it. You can go back and read it, buy the tape, take the tape. You don't have the money, I'll pay for it. But go back and study it on your own. But the bottom line is, <coughs> he says, he says there's a difference between the Lord's Supper and communion. You know how they did it in the early church? Here's how they did it. Of course, they met in homes. And they went to somebody's house. <coughs> they all sat down and ate. And during that time they ate, they fellowshiped. They talked about the things of God. They loved each other. They worked out maybe whatever differences they had with each other. They spent time together. And then they came together to take communion. That's what he's telling the church about here. He's saying some of you are coming, you already ate. Some of you didn't like the food they were going to have, so you ate at home and you showed up and you already, had, you already had enough to drink and enough to eat. You're not even hungry. Other people came, they didn't have anything. You didn't bring anything because you ate at home. He said, and he, he gets all over them. But you see, because of convenience, the church, as long as I've understood it and as long as I've been associated with them, have just forgotten the supper. And they just grow on the, the bread and the, and the grape juice. Now, we're going to do it that way today. But I'm telling you right now, this is the last time we're going to do it that way. From now on, when we meet together, we're going to meet in somebody's home. Hopefully the Christie's. But Rosa's running a fast second with the chili. We're all going to bring food. We're going to sit down and we're going to fellowship. We're going to talk about the things. of the You know why most Baptist churches don't take the time to do the Lord's Supper right before they do communion? Because they're in such a fast-paced society, they just want to get it on, get it over with, because they've got to do it. That reflects the way most pastors look at their people. I don't have time for you, but give me your money and give me your time. We're not going to do that. We're going to do it right, or we ain't going to do it. And we are going to meet together. We're going to have something to eat. We're going to talk about the things of God. We're going to work out any differences that maybe somebody else has. We're going to enjoy the Lord. It, it, it's a time of fellowship. It's a time of it, eating is a picture of the time that we spend in the Word of God together. <clears throat> and we are going to fellowship for a time. We're going to talk about the Lord. We'll talk about the good things. You realize that, and we're going to do this New Year's Eve, but you realize the miracles that God has done in our lives that we never hear about because we're just all moving around and going places? God never intended that for the church. God intended the church to be a family. And we are as close as a family. I'm not knocking it. I, boy, you'd have to look a long way to find somebody that doesn't love everybody like this one does. But I'm just trying to make a good thing better. And I want to do it right. I want to do it biblically. And what we will do is one of the men will preach. Another man will do the Lord's Supper. And we'll switch it around every time we do it. I'm not going to do it. There's no reason for me to do it. It, it, it. This body has to breathe. And it has to eat. And it has to grow. 
and me taking charge of everything and doing everything. No, he doesn't do it like I do it. Oh, remember that time I did the Lord's Supper, honey? Nobody ever did it that way. Oh, give me a break. As true as that may be. That is so asinine. No. You know what? You know what that kind of attitude breeds? It attitudes that he's in charge and I'm not. That ain't going to happen. Let me tell you something. If this thing is successful, at the judgment seat of Christ, we'll all take the bow for it and say, God, we did it because we loved you. If it goes down the tube and we close the doors because nobody cares, it'll be all of us going down the tubes. Simple as that. Because I, it just, it's too much pressure for me, and it isn't right. I'm not letting you off the hook. God saved you like he saved me, and he called me like he called you. And if he's called you here, then you know what? He's called you here like he's called me here to be laborers together. We all share it. We share the good, we share the bad. We take our lumps, we take our blessings. We go through the tough times, we go through the good times. We love each other when somebody's hurting. We praise each other when something happens. We, we, we learn how to give. We learn how to sacrificially love God and give because we love him, not because of some guilt. We come to the study of the Bible because we love the Bible more than anything else in life when we go home. In the Bible, in the New Testament, it was done that way. And that's what he's saying. Look in verse 25. He says, look at verse 25. And after this, now he's talking about the communion now. And he says, after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped. They'd eaten. They'd eaten. And he's saying over here, he says, when you come together, verse 20, therefore into one place, this is not the eat the Lord's Supper. For eating, everyone taketh before his own supper, and one is hungry, another is drunken. Not drunken in the sense of drunk, drunk, but drunk in the sense that you came and you already had enough to drink. And it wasn't that way. The church had corn that just like us. In, in the way it was, it was set up that everybody met together. They ate. They fellowshiped. There was a oneness. There was a communion. There was a bond. There was a love. They enjoyed the fellowship around the food, just like they enjoyed the fellowship around the Word of God. And it was a time when God's Spirit could unify, stop the world from going around for a little minute, and just enjoy the things of God, and then come into, without a doubt, the most spiritual, holiest place in God's mind in all the Bible and brings you and I to the closest point that you'll ever get to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Communion. And we're not in our busy schedules running all around and oh, come to church, give me the wine, give me the bread, Lord died for all of us, oh yeah, let's thank you, oh, thank God for that. And on your way, God is more important to God than that. We're talking about the day God's Son came down and died, shed His blood, and God's people ought to stop, think about it, and remember it before we just run in and do it like we do everything else in life. We're going to do it right or ain't going to do it at all. He says, the, verse 23 and 24, the bread's a picture of the broken body. He says in verse 25, the cup is a picture of the blood of Christ. He says in verse 26, as often as you eat and drink. You see, there's no set time to communion. God knew human nature. He knew if that he said you do it every week or you do it every month, that man would make it a tradition just like he does everything else. That's why Jesus, when he talked about Mary, his mother, never called her mother. He called her woman. 
Why? Because he knows human nature. And he didn't want somebody down the line calling Mary the mother of God and going to the Bible to prove it. So he never called her mother. He called her woman. Well, my goodness, Numbers chapter 21, Moses is told to make a brazen serpent because this fiery serpent's biting the people and they're dying. And they hold it on a pole. And he says, look and live. And it's a picture of Christ. And you know what? A couple hundred years later, down there in 2 Kings chapter 18, they've taken that brazen serpent, put it on a pole, and they made a god out of it, and they're worshiping it. Human nature. So God says, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, as often as you eat and drink, you decide. No rule of thumb on it. No rule of thumb on it. You decide as a local church, as your own governing body, you decide when you're going to do it, but understand, you're showing the Lord's death till He come. Therefore, verse 27, if you eat or drink unworthily, you drink and eat damnation to yourself. You get right at the supper before. Any differences you have with somebody, straighten them out. When you start to sit around and fellowship and feel that sweet communion of God with the believers, if it doesn't do something to want to bring you back to God, then you better check your original salvation certificate to see if it's been punched. He says in verse 28, 29, and 30, examine yourself. And I'm telling you, folks, once you have the supper and you have the communion, you're at a point where you'll never get any closer of feeling the heart of God in the death of His Son. And you've got to be clean. In the Old Testament, before the Lord would come through the camp, everything that was unclean had to be taken out. Everything. And before God will come in to the union, everything that needs to be clean needs to be clean. Now, who can take communion? Anybody saved in the body of Christ. Some churches have what they call closed communion. That means if you're not a member of this church, you can't take it. That, that's junk. You see that old thing? If you're not a member of this building, you can't... Hey, you are a member of the church. This building is not the church. Any born-again, saved believer can take the Lord's Supper. Somebody says you should be baptized. Yes, you should. But on top of that, I'm going to give you a little... I'm going to give you a little extenuating circumstances. In a situation where there's special circumstances, you don't have a baptism like this, and you want to get baptized, but you have not yet, go ahead and take it. If you've got an attitude against baptism that you don't want to do it, I wouldn't take it. You see, it isn't about what you do or what you don't do. It's about your attitude. Yeah, Lord, I want to be, and I'm going to be. Well, we just ain't had the right situation to get it done yet. It ain't like I can go every day. We can fill up the baptistry back here and do it on Sunday. We don't have that luxury. Then he says in verse 30, verse 29, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly, and many sleep. Now, don't take from that that every time somebody gets sick it's because they've got a spiritual problem in their life. That's not what it's saying. And don't take it to the fact that it's because everybody, somebody dies, it's a Christian, it means that God killed them because they weren't doing it right. Don't take it that way. And don't think because you've got weak Christians, it's because you, you just can't, don't take it to that extreme to every case. But know this. It's talking about the Lord's Supper and Communion here. The bottom line is this. 
the thing that's missing in God's people's lives today, and it's why they live their life so flippantly, and why they say some of the stupid, flippant things they do, and why they do the things that they do is because in God's people, and this is true of every one of us, if one thing we need to work on in our lives, and I know it's true of me, and so I know it's true of you, is that we as God's people have no fear of God today. We have no fear of who He is and what He can do. We think He's like our big old marshmallow Santa Claus someplace that just sits up there and loves everybody and really isn't writing things down and paying attention. Wrong career move. That's why the Lord's Supper is so absolutely important, and that's why it is the job of this church. And someday, one thing that is different about me and you is someday, because I do stand up here, I will give an account for what I taught you about the Bible and how I plentifully declare the thing as it is. And let me tell you something. There will be a lot of things in my life that I'll have to give an account for, but this is preaching you the Word of God is not going to be one of them. I will tell you what the Bible says. I will lead you lovingly. But the bottom line is, it's your move, Charlie. You do as you see fit. Because in the bottom line, in the final analysis, at the end of the day, every man rises and falls to his own master. I have no control over you. I don't want any control over you. I am your pastor, and I will preach to you the word of God, truth, and love, and love you with all of my being, and take whatever time I have the rest of my life to give you the word of God in any shape or form you need it, at any time you want it. But the bottom line is, when the ball snapped, you have to run. I love football analogies. <laughs> Bottom line is, guys, this is your church. And with that today, we're going to have our communion. It'll be the last time we have it this way. Next time we'll do it, we'll boot in somebody's home, or maybe we'll do it here and bring the food. I don't care. But we will do it the way it needs to be done. So at this point, Chris Fender's going to come, one of our men, and he's going to administer the communion. The next time we get together to have it, one man will preach, another man will do the communion. We'll work around in rotation. Everybody gets a chance at it. If it wants a chance at it, don't feel bad. Nobody's going to force you to do it. When you feel you're ready, you come to me and say, Bob, I'm ready to do either, and I'll put you in the deal. Chris? everybody I'm sure you're at first uh, Corinthians chapter 11 right now and guys come forward and uh, uh, might as well go ahead and pass the pass the bread out and we'll get ready on that anyway Bob just about covered it all here on first uh, Corinthians as far as the Lord's Supper and communion and it isn't a time to get down you know and to, to just um, have a big meal unworthily and not even thinking about the Lord and uh, anything, but it should be a time to, uh, it's kind of a memorial to God at this time. It's, it should be the purest and cleanest time of our lives, and um, it's just kind of a time out, a time to take a, uh, a moment and confess your sins before God, and that's exactly what we're going to do here in a minute. We're going to just, uh, before we eat anything, we're going to just uh, pray and bow our heads and everybody kind of purify your hearts, because that's exactly what you want to do. And, uh, you know, the reason you do that, and Bob, uh, Bob covered it, is the fact that uh, it's a time of self-examination. It's a time of, of uh, self-judgment of your own self. 
And uh, the reason you do that, why, is just like he said in verse 29, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, and you don't want to be unworthy, uh, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning uh, the Lord's body. And, you know, and that simply means you're not, uh, you're not recognizing what Christ did for you, his sacrifices he made for you. It, this is supposed to be a time of remembrance, uh, remembering me, and that's why he says in verse, finishes up, and, and when uh, Christ uh, 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 said these words in verse 24 and 25, in both, in both those verses, he said, remember me. And that's what we're supposed to do. It's a time of remembrance, a time of remembering his sufferings and the fact of what he did for us when he died for us on, on the cross. And so um, with that... Um, We'll go ahead and, uh, and um, start here in verse 24. And uh, first of all, what we want to do, though, is, uh, is pray. It, pray to yourself. Pray and confess any sins that you may have to the Lord and just purify and cleanse your heart. And um, remember this time and what, uh, what Christ did for us. So go ahead and take a moment. Okay, if everybody's through playing, praying and and um, and purifying yourself before God, and you know, it just um, remembering His suffering that He did for us, the broken body, the shed blood for our remission of sins. In um, verse twenty-four, um, we're going to give thanks. I'm going to ask uh, Phil Christie to go ahead and pray. And then I'll read the passage, and then we'll eat of the bread. Phil? And it says here in verse, Jesus said, and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. It's a picture of his broken body for us. Go ahead and eat. And then, in like manner, verse 25, we'll, um, after we pass out uh, the blood or the juice, as we're using, um, it's a picture of his blood, though, the fact that, that he shed his blood for the remission of our sins. And... Uh,
okay, if, if everybody has, has their cup. Uh, we're going to do it in like manner. And Jimmy uh, Steinmetz, I'm going to ask you to pray before I read this uh, second passage in verse 25. Go ahead. And it says, after this manner, also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this is the cup, the New Testament in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Go ahead. And in verse 26, Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till they come. Uh, John, would you like to say a prayer before Bob takes over? We're going to be dismissed in just a second, uh, but I wanted, I told you, I have a little something for you that, uh, you know, a long time ago, I, uh, I've always been into astronomy, but when I got saved, I really started getting the thing put together in the Word of God, and as I've said many, many times, there's only two things in all the world that declare God's, well, really three, there's only three things in the world that declare God's glory. One of them is the Word of God, the other one is you and me as a believer, and the last one is the heavens declare the glory of God. So <clears throat> I put together some, some bookmarks that uh, we're going to not only uh, give out to you today because this is the first day and I want to give you a little something for Christmas that I put many, many, many hours in because I took all these pictures by myself. Uh, and Valerie, the reason why I said it's such a special thing because we're going to give one to all the visitors when they, from now on when they come to the church because it's got our church time and you're our first visitor, so... So uh, they're going to escort you up in just a minute first. You get to take pick of all the other. But anyway, <laughs> here they are. And uh, on the back, they got all of the uh, they got all the times of our church. Uh, we'll, uh, we're going to I'm going to we're going to use them to give out to people. You know, let them know about our church. Uh, this is just give you the one. this is this is an Eshon galaxy here, a hundred million light years from planet Earth. This is the Ring Nebula. This is uh, the Jupiter with the four moons. It's got a little moon tramping it. This is another edge on galaxy. You know, Mars was at opposition this year. It's the closest it ever came in 60 billion years or something like that. And I photographed the four face, five faces of Mars, all the first peak, all the surface features on it. So you got that one. Uh, this is a great galaxy at M31, the big spiral. <coughs> it's, of course, the planet Saturn, which is, needs no description. And then the Whirlpool Galaxy, which is uh, uh, another galaxy. So um, I want you to take them. Uh, everybody gets one. 
and uh, down the line we'll make, we're going to make them up. We bought all this stuff to do them ourselves, so we're going to use this as a promotion. I can even make them up and put magnets on the back and put them on the refrigerator with your favorite verses on them, so I will do special orders. But, <laughs> excuse me, sorry, Jason and I will do. No, no, that's wrong too. Jason, me, my wife, Kelly, Jamie, and Danny, we sat up family nights for three nights cutting all the backs out and trimming them and putting them together and everything. So, but we love you. It ain't much. But you know what you can do with it? Keep it in your Bible. But when you want to unline your verses, you can use it as an edge. I left a little bit on the one side for that. And uh, uh, they are $1,000 a piece. I know you should know <laughs> But anyway, we're going to be dismissed. I love you so much. Four o'clock today at your house. Maps, please come, and we'll have a great time, and we'll go from there. Okay? We're going to be dismissed. I want to ask Jan Hill to come up and dismiss us in prayer. So, Jan, come on. No, I'm joking. That, 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 that Jan Hill, come up and preach. Come up and ask those in prayer. Okay? I feel bad doing this. <laughs> Don't do it. I'll do it. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Lord, I just thank you for this beautiful group of people, Lord. They're just they're so precious. Thank you for Bob and for our church and for this body of believers that love each other, Lord. And thank you for your son and all you've done for us, God. And we'll we'll praise you until the day you come. And Lord, come back soon for us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. <laughs>